remind you, it would be really, really helpful for you to have a, a copy of the scriptures in front of, front of you, either to quickly open it or download it or lean over person or go grab one from our stash of microfish Bibles in the back there. Um, there's no such thing as a walk of shame. All right, so we'd love to have you there because we want to look into God's Word together. <clears throat> so today is Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. Um, it is about as meat on the bone as you can get. It's like, for those of you guys that are like non-vegans, if you're a vegan, I guess it's kind of like uncooked asparagus. Um, <laughs> down low on the stock. Um, if you are a person that enjoys meat, this is like, it's like Asabuco shank meat. It's like really, it's, 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 it's thick, it's good, it's helpful, right? Um, <coughs> you read the book of Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation, You'll notice something. It doesn't ever really struck me until this week. But in Revelation, <coughs> as it goes along, after you get fast, the first three, you know, the, the seven churches and what's talked about there, to a great degree, the book of Revelation is the book of standing in awe of God. Everyone who isn't a complete enemy is standing in awe of God in that, in that book, right? Angels are showing up. Creatures are showing up. And everyone has got their, ha their hat in their hand, like standing in front of God. He's unfolding stuff all over the place in heaven. <clears throat> and, and none of them, what they're doing is they're not waiting to say amen and praise him until after he does stuff. They're coming underneath him, standing in awe of him because of who he is. Before he does stuff, before he even opens up a scroll, before these kind of things, like they are caught up in him in him um and it fits in it fits in revelation it just you see how appropriate it is you, you're not saying like man why are they why are they praising him they don't even know what he's gonna do yet you get the scene in revelation like he's massive i mean clouds are surrounding him and emanating from him like massive creatures that shake the temple with their voices they don't even look on him because he's so powerful and other otherly than they are it makes a lot of sense yet when we come back in the rest of the new testament a lot of times or the rest of the old testament that doesn't transfer in sometimes we find God to be praiseworthy based upon after we know what he's done versus who he is. Today's passage, um, I believe the intention of the Spirit of God and Paul in the passage is helping us stand in awe of God, in awe of God without clear understanding of all that he's doing. We stand in awe and we take our hat off in our hand and we stand there and go, you are God and I'm not. Um, I think this is the argument that goes all the way through actually this whole portion of the book is him standing there and unfolding the greatness of him and us finding our rightful position at his feet even when we don't understand all the things he's doing. Even when he's just giving us a little foretaste of what he's doing or little partial explanations of him, he's glorious and wonderful mighty. This passage for me, <coughs> you know, I, I've told a lot, most of you guys know, uh, bless you, um, most of you guys know uh, I was raised in a Christian household so I'm going to Sunday school, doing plenty of flannel graph. It's an old school thing. Ask someone else. Um, ask John Hansel. Um, I, I'm learning up all these, all these Bible studies, lessons, and whatever. And, and I kind of get into college. I'm, I'm, I'm 18 years old. I realize I'm, reali I'm listening to God's word preached really well by some people uh, doing this stuff here. It's like preaching through God's word and not just kind of picking some nuggets. And, um, and through that, I think the Lord convicted me that I didn't really love God's word. 
Um, I knew I should, but I didn't really love it. So I had a conversation with the Lord that he was not shocked about, and he graciously brought to my mind that, oh, I don't love God's word, but God, I want to love your word. I want my heart to resonate with all those things that you say in there, so do this work. And, um, and then it seemed reasonable to me, like, well, then pick a good path, and let's get on that path and stick on it as we ask God to backfill this desire for his word in my heart. So God did this amazing thing that, that pr- I think it's my freshman year in college, um, and I'm reading the scriptures and for the first time with my adult mind. And I'm seeing things I've never seen in there before. I had read them particularly, I was trying to read devotionally and carefully in my high school years, um, but usually I was very targeted. I was topically going after things. I had a problem, and I'd go try to find an answer in the word for my problem. But once I got to college, I'm actually reading on God's agenda, not my problem-solving agenda. And it's totally fine to go to God's words to find the the solves to your problems. 100%. Keep going, okay? But where real health comes in, when we stand underneath the Lord and say, God, you are God, I'm not, teach me. And we listen, right? That was the thing that marked those that would actually follow Christ in the New Testament, is they weren't simply going to him just for some fish or just for a best-of playlist of, like, miracles and healings. Um, they would sit and listen to him. But so many weren't sitting and listening to him. They were just sitting for the, they were there for like the things they wanted to hear. And so when he quit doing that, they would leave. Or when he would say something tough, as he often did, they're like, oh, I don't like that, I'm going home. So I'm reading it on my own with my first kind of a full adult mind, reading on God's agenda, kind of reading through books. And um, I got to this passage as a freshman in college, I believe. And it was... Um, it was a, uh, a war of humbling. It was a war of humbling. Because I could, with my 18-year-old mind, uh, in the desert in California, I could see something in this passage that's clear. And uh, quite honestly, here's the funny part. When you guys read this passage, it's kind of clear from the beginning where it's going. So I could pick that up at 18. I see where this passage is going. God is sovereign. God is in control. But the details of which he goes into things and the, a- the questions he doesn't answer and the questions he does answer really kind of, held me, like him holding me and going in front of himself going like, do you see the problems here? And what are you going to do about that? Are you going to stand over me in judgment? Or will you stand under me in awe? I could, I eventually got to the point where I had to pick one of those two paths. Will I stand under God in awe or will I stand over God in judgment? And in God's kindness, goodness, with, with little I understood, um, he pulled my heart to stand under him in awe. And that was kind of my first foray into this mysterious thing of how God directs and guides and chooses and we are responsible. That was my first chapter in it. Very little understood, but I clearly see that God is God and God is doing this. And that, that needs to be established in my mind. I'm thankful for the Lord doing that. So as we read it today, to some degree, as we all learn how to read Scripture more and more, you'll see where the text is going because it's quite clear. There's a lot of things that are repeated, that kind of stuff. My goal today is to try to unfold a little bit of the argument that goes through here just so we kind of get what's there. And we really can't have on top of the pile what belongs on top of the pile. That our hearts and minds don't all of a sudden like fall off into a ditch, into a subcategory. These topics about who God is, his character, and his motivation and power are not things solved away from God's word. They are things about God and himself that transcend us. They are out of our pay grade, out of our categories. And we only know about them in as much as he opens the heavens and drops nuggets, right? And he's only dropping certain things about these topics, certain things, things that he really wants you to know about, especially if he drops them multiple times. 
said in multiple ways, pointing different aspects of them, emphasizes them, uses them as foundations of promises and blessing. We especially need to listen to those things and pay attention to what he brings. And we contend with those things, try to figure them out. But we don't then figure out, um, focus on more heavily on the things that he hasn't said. Because these divine things that he parts the clouds and brings down, they're outside of us. And they will bring a bunch of questions with them. Really good, genuine questions. But this is stuff outside of us. So when it comes to us, we need to be very careful to pay attention to the things that he's emphasizing and not get sidetracked by the things he's not, which are very good questions in our mind, but he's not emphasizing them yet. So here we are in the psalm. Let me just pray for help for me, help for us all. Father, in your love for us, you've given us your word. In your love for us, you've given us your spirit, both to your spirit writes your word through Paul. Your spirit will help me preach today. Your spirit will help me and all of us listen to your word today, to understand it, to believe it, and have hearts transformed into hearts like yours. And so I pray for your help for us, that we would live in joy and not in trivia. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so here we are. We are in verse 14. Um, this is, this is, these are my points today. I'm just going to give you all the points, okay? This is where we're going, okay? Verse 14, there's no injustice with God. Verses 15 and 19, God is repeatedly sovereign in salvation. And then verses 19 and 24, worship will be the answer. It's kind of our framework of it, okay? Just this is the best way I can figure out how to do it. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to like work through this passage today, but this is the best way. This is where we're going today. But as we start that, we start remembering that this is in the middle of an argument that Paul made. We talked about it last week. Paul just said in chapter 9, verses 10 to 13, he said, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older were served the younger, as is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Those are the last words that have happened until verse 14. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't give a, di I didn't give a caveat. Here's my caveat. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, um, what you're going to see here is behind-the-scenes stuff. Jesus in his ministry rolls through this world and rolls through humanity and darkness, and he says, come to me. Come taste and see. Come let me satisfy your soul. Repent. Run away from the darkness that you're part of it in and run to me. Open invitation. He walks through his ministry doing this, right? <clears throat> He has a whole second layer of things that he teaches us about how things happen and why things happen. But largely, that is for his kids as we know him. It's kind of back at home around the campfire type knowledge. He does show it to some people, which is when they are in the know and they're very insolent. And they're really rising up against him openly. Knowing. He also shows this kind of background information to him. So just as far as a category of thought, um, I, incur I invite you, if you don't know Jesus and you know you don't know Jesus, you're getting to see a little bit of how the father is caring for his kids and how he's setting up their relationship. What's offered to you is not a resolution to what category do I fit in this passage. What's offered to you is the call to come and see, come and know, come and find love, come and find forgiveness, come and find what it means to be a child of God. So I just want to throw that out there in case you're listening online or in person and you're not sure where you fit in this. You're not confident in the gospel of Jesus. This is written towards the followers of God and what he's doing for them. Okay, so just a little caveat. I hope it might make a little sense. So we've just read <coughs> what's in chapter 9, verses 10 to 13. 
And when you run into that information in chapter 9, verses 10 to 13, which is largely this, that the recipients of salvation are determined by God, not by biology, and not determined by any accomplished or foreseen merit in a person. This chapter is, starts out with this, this problem. God made these promises, but God's people don't seem to be following God. Does that mean that God's word has failed? He goes on to say, no, it hasn't failed. God has actually been saving people, not based upon their biology, not based upon their lineage, and not based upon their merit, but he said, but he's saving people based upon his will. That was the argument in verses nine, uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 10 to 13. It's not by man or woman being good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the merit, the works and people, but rather because of him who calls. And then he talks about Jacob and Esau. So we see that the recipients of salvation are determined by God, not by biology, and not determined by any accomplished or foreseen merit of a person. And that's the main point he's making there, saying this is why his word is not failing, because he's doing it this way. But Paul knows, Spirit of God knows, that when you say salvation is God's choice, um, and just as I know at this very moment, what happens is as soon as you say salvation is God's choice, in the mind of most of us is, what about then, right? And I believe in verse 14, he's going, I know, there's a what about then. But he wants us to listen to what we just quit listening about in favor of listening to our question. So he says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part, literally unrighteousness on God's part? Answer, by no means. So he raises the question I think that most of us feel. God fully embracing one, Jacob, fully denying one, Esau, not based upon their performance, but rather on his own plan and purposes, doesn't that make him unrighteous? And when it comes to him overseeing us, make him unjust, right? In the ESV, it's unjust. In the NIV, it's unjust. I don't know why they do that. But uh, doesn't that make him unjust that he would do that? And his answer is, he puts a pin in it for now, no. May it never be. No, may it never be. We know that from Scripture that God has no sin or darkness at all. I have a number of passages here I'm going to show just kind of talking about what is known about God's righteousness. Psalm 9, 7 to 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for justice. For justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. James 1, 3. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted, and he himself tempts no one. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then just capping it off at the end of the book, Revelation chapter 16, verse 7, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So in this passage so far, Paul is demonstrating to them that God's word has not failed by going back to a bunch of Old Testament statements to show them what God is doing. It is established in the Old Testament that God is control. It's also established in the Old Testament that there is no unrighteousness in God and there's no injustice with God. He will never do something unjust. But I really believe in verse 14, all he's doing is he's putting a pin in the answer of no. 
He knows the question because he talked about God's sovereignty. He knows as soon as you talk about God's sovereignty, we all go, but what about? And he goes, I know, I know. But back to my point, my divine point here, and he enters back into that point in verse 15. So returning to that point, and he's pinned us down. He's going to come back to our question of, of the fairness of things. He shows another instance of God's sovereignty and God's direction in salvation. He says this, uh, and this is, this is a reference to Exodus 9.16, as you might remember, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So mercy doesn't always insinuate guilt, but often just need. It doesn't mean a person is guilty, therefore they need mercy. It could just mean they're in need, they need mercy. They're broke down the side of the highway, they need mercy. So verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, verse 16. And, and again, here, here is the emphasis. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So this is the second time he's doubling down on this argument about salvation comes from God, not the merit of man. And then he goes further on to demonstrate it again from Exodus 33, 19, where he references that in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, so when you see those so thens, that's like the lifted up principle, right? And in verse, in verse 16, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 18, so then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Salvation is directed by God, both in giving mercy and in hardening hearts. First place I want to call us to do is to listen to what God is saying and for a moment to set aside our questions about it. What he's saying, not just once, not just twice, but three times with four arguments, is that fundamentally we need to hold our questions and objections and take in what is being emphasized and repeated and detailed by the Spirit through Paul. God, with perfect power, plan and goodness, which we call sovereignty, is in control of salvation. It is true, not only is it true, but God wants us to know it and acknowledge it. He wants us to know it and acknowledge it. This is not a place where he's saying, you should know it and acknowledge it because I'm going to show you exactly all the whys and hows. He's saying, this is what you need to know. This is why I'm doing it, and it's a good thing. I'm higher than you. And then he comes back to that original question. He comes back to the really question, the, f the question of fairness. In verse 19, he brings us back to the question of fairness and righteousness of God. Um, but he does it by bringing us not so much to just a question, but to a question with sass on it. Um, in verse 19, it turns to sass. The asker has forfeited trust and respect. And it's more the issue of condemnation here, condemnation of God. Verse 19. He says, will you then say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Answer, but who are you, O man, O human, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So uh, I'm making a point here that this is not just a question. This is an accusation in how it's written here. Um, that there, that there is, that there is, because there's a rebuke here. There's th three things that tell me this is an accusation. Number one, 
you will say to me then, that's not how Paul usually talks about hypothetical questions. Usually he says, what shall we say? This is when he's distancing himself. You will say to me, it is a potential, um, it is a potential question, but it's, it's given a different way. Uh, the second way is this, he says, but who are you, O man, or literally, O human? That's a chide, a correction, it's a putting a person in the rightful place. And finally, third is it says, to answer back to God, there's the sass, right? That's not just simply responding conversationally to God, but that's coming back with heat, coming back with pointedness and distrust of the Lord. So the, real que- so the question is real and, and, a, and a true issue, but there's a question about the perspective from which um, we will come to that question. Is the perspective of the question being asked as a true worshiper of God underneath God in awe? Fair question. Good question. Should be known. You know what? You know you know it's a good question? Because the Spirit of God gives the question right here. And the Spirit of God through Paul gives the question. So in case that never struck your mind of being mysterious, he goes, You need to know that it's mysterious. I'm gonna point out that's mysterious. So the question is really good and valid. And it's gonna come from a trusting heart underneath the Lord, or it's gonna come from a person thinking that they are in a neutral position as a judge in accusation or suspicion. Two angles is the tone of which the question will be presented to the Lord. And the Spirit's answer here, <laughs> I, I think what's funny is this. Like, he, he brings out this kind of sassy accusation, rebuked. Who are you, O man? Who are you, O man? And the answer then of the Spirit and Paul is not a scramble then to answer the question, the answer then is a doubling down in the very first point he made in the first place. God is not backing off of this spot. The answer is found in verse 21. God is God and we humans are a different plane. Verse 21. The potter has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So obviously, yes, the potter does have creative right over the clay. And his eye-opening point is, yes, God as our creator, has the right to create us as he sees fit, as is his right since he is the creator. And then he goes on to say that not only does God have a creator owner rights over us, he also does have reasons and purposes behind what he's saying and what he's doing. Now, I'm not saying he's going to give us all the reasons, but he gives us some of the reasons. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even to us, even us, whom he's called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He's saying that because Paul himself was a Jew, and he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles. And he says, so God is um, making known these riches of glory for the vessels of mercy, his children, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even to us whom he has called, not for only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So, so I, I don't know, you know, like in, in, my, in my mindset, because let me just remind you something. I'm a human and I'm a sinner by nature. God brings the gospel to me. He saves me. He puts his word in front of me. He draws me to learn from it. And that day, I don't start thinking everything correctly. I start a process of learning how to think things correctly. I'm looking at God. I'm looking at his word. And some of the things I read, I go, oh, I've always thought that. And some of the things I read, go, I've never thought that before. Some of those things, I go, that breaks the engine of my mind or else he's foolish. So there's a process of me thinking those, those things through. It, to me, it almost seems confusing or maybe almost rude that when the question of fairness is brought out, 
that for the fourth time in the passage, it's doubled down on the powers in God's hand. It almost seems rude. If it was you, it probably would be rude. Or if it was me, it probably would be rude. But this is the Spirit of God in the pen of Paul writing this. Agreement of God himself. And he's always right. Number two, agreement of Paul is God does not allow the erosion of his power. He just doesn't. He doesn't. Um, Whatever answers come or don't come, that's not an option to take sovereignty out of God's hands. I think I think this is that point. It was who are you, oh man? When eighteen-year-old Scott Burns went, oh, <laughs> like oh, oh, well, uh, good point, good point. Um, I and um, I mean, and I I'm reading my Bible a little bit. We'll finish off in Job today, but there's words in Job. I put my hand on my mouth. It's a good question, but when my my question started turning into demand, started telling God to justify Himself. When, uh, uh, or, or to start justifying his position in this. The sovereignty is not true unless this answer can be given. Um, I'm reading the text. Two things will happen to you when you start asking those questions. Number one, you will be into the text and informed, or you'll be out of the text trying to find the stuff out and figure it out. Your, your thoughts will be predominantly shaped by one of the two things. Number one, um, I would tell you that for 2,000 years now, people have been trying to solve some of the mysteries of this. The sovereignty of God and the fairness of God. It's been going on for a long time. And they've changed the names of it. There's all kinds of uh, arguments that are put out there. Brothers and sisters, you have to stick in the text. The, this stuff is God's stuff. It's not human stuff. And he's telling you stuff about it. So if you want to tangle with the topic, stay in God's words about God's stuff. And do not exit God's words, having like plucked about 10 points and then going out in philosophy and trying to create solutions out there. They just don't exist. They don't exist. Because this is God's area. This is God's character. This is God's nature, not ours. So here the potter, verse 24, has made two types of vessels, one prepared for destruction uh, in verse 23, and one prepared hand for such a level of honor and blessing it's called prepared for glory. And we saw some of that language back in Romans 8. Um, when we think through what God is going to do in us, he says, do not count the sufferings of this present world worthy to be converted to the glories that will be revealed in us. I, I know we tend to think like, okay, I get saved by Jesus. I keel over dead. Whoop, I get sucked up into heaven. You know, sea of glass, streets of gold. Um, I'm not sick anymore. I'm not jacked up anymore. I don't sin anymore. Um, and somehow it's not going to be Groundhog Day over and over and over again, and it's just going to be awesome. But but there's so much more of things that we don't, that, that, that are hints out there that sometimes we just gl- glide over, like this. He's prepared you for glory, glory that will be revealed in you. What we are has not yet appeared because he has not appeared, and we will be like him. There is an edge of the blessings of God that we just have just a tiny little bit of a down payment on, which is called the Holy Spirit in us. And we don't, know how often, very often, to look into those categories of blessing that God's promised. But he says here, this is the end of the one category, is prepared for destruction. The other one is prepared for glory, is what he's doing. So, <coughs> third, uh, unique here, in this passage here, in this, in this verse, is that not only God's sovereign, but God is not unaffected in this verse. He's not unaffected. 
It shows him enduring, laboring, taking pains with these people who are embodying destruction. So there's not a, in this text verse right here, it's not that God goes, I've got a plan. It actually describes God as enduring something here. God's taking pains, enduring vessels of wrath in order to sovereignly do two things. Now, just notice it, and I'm just telling you, don't, don't be surprised about this in the rest of your life. In this category of God's sovereignty and the responsibility of man, God is going to be stacking things into the category that don't fit logically. He's going to say, I'm completely sovereign, and man, it's completely responsible. You're like, but what? I, I know that logically doesn't fit, but this category is why we keep going back to the text and putting these things in. So here we have God sovereignly creating two types of vessels and yet enduring what's going on, taking pains. And he does that in, that, in this verse right here to show two things. Number one, to show his wrath, not cruelty, but absolute uncompromised rejection and war against the curse of all evil. So to show his wrath against evil. And number two, to make known his power, which he leverages for his children and the ability to undergird all of his promises for us. So to show shows wrath, shows power, and those things are there are as tools. So when the wrath and the power is shown, they are tools through which something else could be shown. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Because we cannot understand to some degree what are the riches of his glory for us unless we see both his wrath against sin and his power in this world. And so we need to become aware of those things because they then let us see his favor for us. So an enormous intention and overarching purpose behind God's plan is, in, is its needed nature in the blessing of, of God's children. I don't think that God gives an open answer to the logical problem of God is control, how then is man truly guilty? I don't think he actually gives a logical answer to that in this passage. And while he does provide some of the motivation for this work, the closure given by God, who just brought up the question, the closure to that question is actually the transcendent greatness of the creator. That is the closure. The closure isn't an answer to how this and that work together. The answer he gives is the massiveness of his nature and the smallness of us. And the proper alignment of me under him in awe, not me over him in judgment. It's very similar to the end of the book of Job, um, which at the end... Um, Job, if, you, if you've read it, Job is a hard book to figure out. We think it's the earliest book in the Bible. So what's interesting is this topic is a central theme in the very first book of the Bible. It's kind of like God wants you to know about his power and his goodness, right? And so at the end of the book, the book's kind of hard because um, it's got a lot of hard parts. It's a fun read. You should read it. Um, and then to try diagrams is even more fun. But the end of it is this amazing part where Job, who is God's man, um, kind of moves from questions for God to more accusations against God. And there's a, a great interchange, and we'll finish our time off today by looking at that. But I first have two things I want to encourage you towards when we look in this, pa in this passage here. Number one, what will you do with God's repeat emphasis of sovereignty? It's not just here. Um, I, was, I was talking with um, a pastor in the area um, who, uh, yeah, a pastor in the area and we have very different views on the gospel, very different views on scripture, all that kind of stuff. And he said this, he said, hey, I was on your website. I saw that you guys study and teach expositionally. That's the style here that we actually just go through text. Right? We just keep going. He goes, I saw that. So that probably means that you're reformed, which is a theological term for you celebrate in God's sovereignty. 
Because even though he's not on the same team, he knows that if you're going to plow the text of Scripture, you're going to hit this topic so often that it becomes a seminal topic for you. Where uh, the sovereignty of God is an is a non is a non-issue. It's there. So he doesn't believe it, but he knows that if you're going to stick in the text versus picking out of the text Easter eggs to add to your idea, it's going to become an issue because it's everywhere in the New Testament. So my question is, what do you want to do with God's sovereignty? Be clear on what God is about, what God is being clear about, and being clear about emphasizing. That's actually part of the gospel. The gospel brings us from people who stand over God or indifferent God to people who sit underneath him, and we sit crisscross applesauce at the feet of Jesus going, you're the way, the truth, the life. Give it to me. Teach me. Teach me. What are you saying? And just as any of us with our kids or the kids we think we'd have someday or babysit, there are certain things where you're like, I want you to know this. Like, this becomes a big deal. Don't turn the gas on the oven, right? Don't run in the street. Uh, first things of first importance. Even our relationships with people, we have things that are first and foremost. Sons. Like when we, when we say, son, I will never not love you. I will never not love you. Uh, daughter, I will never kick you away from me. I, uh, we are together. That's of first importance. That proceeds over things that come. So there are things that God does emphasize often. And as worshipers, people underneath God, lovers of God, we learn from him and, and pay attention to things he emphasizes. And he emphasizes through a number of ways. We really listen to him. He repeats things a lot of times. He double downs on it. Um, doubles down like this here in this argument going deeper, deeper, deeper. Sometimes he says truly, truly, which is like, hey, right there. Um, he makes extensive, longer teachings on whole chapters, like Romans 9, like Ephesians 1. And then he makes clear statements about something being important foundation for other doctrines and promises and, pres and, and presents it as a beautiful gift. So those are all different ways to emphasize things. It's, it's, it's actually very similar to how you emphasize everything. So when we sit at the feet of Jesus and say, let me pay attention to the things, first things first and what you're emphasizing, we as worshipers want to sit in his emphasis and emphasize what he emphasizes and let what he emphasizes rain high on it. I mention it uh, fairly often here, but that's one of the things that the false leaders of Israel were known for and were rebuked for by Jesus. They did not have a sense of God's priorities. He said, that's great. You tithe mint and basil and rue. He goes, but what about the bigger things like justice, right? He goes, so take care of these bigger things, these higher priorities, and then tithe your mint, right? Come back to the lesser things. The lesser things aren't, un aren't unimportant. They aren't unimportant, but the greater things need to be known. And one of the things that, that really tends to characterize us as people who dabble with God's word is that we don't have an idea about prioritization. That's why. It's one of the reasons why we say, hey, what's the first and greatest commandment? Quote it with me. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your muchness. Yeah, it works. Okay. Because, because <laughs> Old Testament, New Testament, God says, this is the first commandment, not sequentially, like, of essence. This is the most important thing. Love the Lord with everything you are. So we as even most moderately informed listeners go, oh, I see what you're saying there, right? So when he says in Deuteronomy, we're like, I see what you're saying there. Then he says in Matthew, we're like, I see what you're saying. See. Mark, I see what you're saying. <laughs> Luke, I see what you're saying. All the way down to Revelation chapter 2, oh, I see what you're saying. Repeated, stated, preeminent. So we as people have to listen to the things that God 
has emphasized. And I would tell you, brothers and sisters, the issue of God's sovereignty and salvation is emphasized, repeated. It is stated as the foundation of blessings and future and promises and seen as God being beautiful in it. So my question for you is, number one, will you embrace it as God is emphasizing it? Now, here's the thing. It's really hard to think through. So I don't want you to think that like, hey, man, I'm kind of new to the sovereignty thing and I'm not sure where I fit on it. I'm like, take your time. And here's what you do. Read the Bible. Uh, don't go watch YouTube videos on it. Everyone's got things to say. Read th- just read the Bible. Just go, all right, Lord, teach me about this sovereignty thing. <laughs> Whatever. I heard it's kind of big. This rep- repeated a bunch of times. Man, just start cruising the New Testament. You can cruise the Old Testament too, but like just start cruising the New Testament and just see where it shows up in Jesus' teaching. See where it shows up in every single epistle. And, and, and what does it do? How important is it? Is it actually a foundational piece? Is this something that God is showing off? Or is he hiding this topic? So just ask the Lord for help. Take your time, brothers and sisters. Just run, read through it. My question, though, is whatever he makes clear, what will you do with that? Will you submit to it and embrace it? Or will you, do you feel like you have the right to hold them off until it makes sense? Uh, Number two, what will you do with the question about fairness? Because it is a good, fair question. It's actually God's question. Brings it up here. What will you do with the question about fairness? I would encourage you, number one, to be clear on the difference between asking and judging. Our questions can't become accusations or negations. Accusations or negations. Because really, that's usually the the sequence. Usually, we will deal with who God is a little bit. If we're not submitting to Him, we'll deal with who God is a little bit. And then the accusation turns into a negation of something else that He's already emphasized. And for us in our culture, for whatever reason, we usually don't tend to negate that He's good. We tend to negate that He's powerful. That's kind of the trend. If we don't just chuck Him all together. Right? So be careful of the accusations and negations that flow out of that. Just because something appears to be a logical dead end for us, this gives us no right to accuse or suspect him or demand of him higher answers than he judges. There's an Old Testament, there's an old term, not Old Testament, there's an old term called, it's actually a book called God on the Dock, right? And it's, it's a court setting from, from Europe where uh, whoever's in the dock is actually being questioned, right? And uh, C.S. Lewis has a book titled that. Um, we are the people in the dock. God is not in the dock. So our questions need to make sure they always have that rightful tone. Never allow God to be put on trial in your heart and your mind. Ask your heart out. Sit at his feet, search biblically, but don't judge him. Come at it prayerfully and humbly. And third, note, when you're reading through scriptures, note the wedding of God's sovereignty and goodness to the welfare of his children. Note the wedding of God's sovereignty and goodness to the welfare of his children. Um, most often in the scripture, when God's sovereignty and goodness is brought out, but particularly sovereignty, it's being used as the foundation of God to show his love and blessings on you as his child. It's usually a foundational point. It's usually not so removed. Here in this passage here, it's largely removed. It is largely the greatness and sovereignty of God. Look at it. At the end, it, tw- it tweaks over towards us and how we're blessed. But most often in the New Testament, look at why God thinks it's so beautiful for you. Because all these blessings, all this security, all this hope, all this well-treatment actually flows from that. And that's what brought it up in the first place. So note the wedding of God's sovereignty and goodness to the welfare of his children. God is not holding out the all-amazing set up and secure, uh, God is holding the all amazing set up and secure blessings he has done and guaranteed already for his children and the amazing 
block of blessings is precisely guaranteed by his sovereign power in those chapters. Particularly if you want another one to read, if you want to get done reading uh, Romans 1, uh, cruise over to Ephesians, sorry, Romans 9, cruise on over to Ephesians 1 this afternoon. Cruise through that. Look, it's like, it's just, it's this, it's Ephesians 1 is like, look at all this amazing stuff. You're just like in this bathtub of blessings, you know, just like swimming amongst it. But look at where it comes from again and again and again and again in that chapter. Um, look at what he says, why he says you could actually count on it, all right? Ephesians 1 is beautiful in that. So I want to finish out with this. Book of Job. I've put some verses up on here. I told you this, this, this dynamic goes way a long time ago. Job, he's a righteous man. He has been forgiven by God. Um, he's gone under intense suffering over his life. Oh, don't read it yet. We'll get there. Okay. Um, intense suffering. I mean, it's just hard. His wife even said, just curse God and die. He's over in the corner with some broken pieces of pots, like scraping his big body acne or whatever he has going on. Like, it's just, it's just miserable. Everyone's died. And he has these friends that have come and sat with him, and they're given counsel. And, and in the end, there's a lot of good counsel, they said, but in the end, it proved to be bad counsel. And then there's this guy named Elihu, this young buck who shows up and waits his turn until after everyone talks and comes in and lays down a rope of very careful words for a couple chapters. And, um, and it's here I want to tie into this, at the end of this. Elihu says in Job chapter 33, 6, he says, Elihu, to Job, Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Oh, isn't that funny language? Have we heard that anywhere else? Does not the potter have right over the clay? All right, amazing. He goes, Behold, I'm toward God as you are. I too was pinched off a piece of clay, saying, like, uh, Job, we are just men under God as our maker. Later on, Job 37, 20, 23, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit, who stand over him in judgment. And then God steps in, takes the mic away from Elihu, and God steps in and starts going. And it's this amazing set of passages. um, Chapter 38, God says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel? By words without knowledge. Son, you are talking about things you don't know about. You're talking about things you don't know about. (laughs) Dress for action like a man. And I will question you. And you will make it known to me. Where And then he starts off, you hear a big divine knuckle crack. (laughs) Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have an understanding. And then he goes followed by chapters of similar statements showing the greatness and trustworthiness of God over a small, temporary, powerless man. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you'll make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? And then we get to this beautiful spot where Job has closure. He doesn't get answers. Job never gets the answers in Job, just like we don't get the answers in Romans 9. But he gets closure, like we get closure. And it's from his soul. He gets off his high horse, fully repentant. Job chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. Who are you, O man? And what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, I will proceed no further. Then Job answered the Lord later on. Chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. 
I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours could be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? <laughs> Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak and I will question you and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I despise to take myself down and repent in dust and ashes. Um, like Job in Romans 9, this is a beautiful passage of God standing in front of us and showing his consistency. And underneath his consistency is his will and is his direction and his sovereignty. Of course, when he shows us those things, they bring very fair questions to us. And those questions should be asked and searched out in Scripture. And there are answers given along, certain answers given along in that procession. But we have to be careful that we are not erring towards the suspicions and questions and logical problems we have when God is expressing his divine reality to us. Instead, the gospel frees us to forget ourselves, to despise ourselves in that way, to sit as a human at the foot of Jesus and say, teach me the things about me and teach me the things about you that are way beyond me. I will not darken your counsel. I will not put you in the dock. I will not judge you. I'll put my hand in my mouth and listen to what you say, and I will embrace what you say. And then he invites you to ask fair questions and read it out and think it out, but as a person who stands underneath God in awe, not over God in judgment. So, brothers and sisters, I hope that you don't listen to this and go, oh, I understand the topic of God's sovereignty. I just actually hope this actually frames your approach towards it. This is just framing your approach towards it. There's so many things that God wants to show you in, in Colossians and Ephesians and the rest of, of Romans and in the gospel. So, so many things that God wants to show you. You're just on the beginning of the journey. Just travel a journey in humility. In humility. And stand in awe of our God, not over him. Let's pray. Father, so we're going to sing these songs in the end here to praise your name because we are just little men, little women. Um, what is man that you're mindful of us? And so we are blessed that you would speak to us. We are blessed that you would bring grace to us. We are blessed that you would um, open the heavens and, and give information about you and your heart and your mind and your plan that we have no clue about aside from you giving those things. And Father, we repent from insulting that information by what we can't understand around it. Give us hearts to yield at your foot and to listen to what you're saying and to embrace you because you are not our friend, just. You are our God. And yes, you are our friend. And yes, you are our Father. And you have drawn us close, Lord, but we cannot treat you like a man. You are God and there is no other. And we stand humbly underneath you and all of you and thank you that such a great God would transcend to us, condescend to us, and love us, and show yourself to us, and abide in us, and with us, now and forever. Thank you for your love. We stand in honor and praise of you. In Christ's name, amen.